Thanks for joining us today as you listen to a portion of a message recorded at Vine Life Church in Boulder, Colorado. If you'd like to connect with us further, you can visit us online at www.vinelife.com. I have so many things here, I'm going to be a little stressed to organize it all. So, um, let's hear the word of the Lord. The Lord says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the Logos. And as we meet before you and with you today, we ask that you would release your spirit and that we would hear the rhema. We would hear the spoken word of you in our lives as we study the Logos, the written word of your will. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So what's going on here? Well, I think everybody's figured it out by now. So Paul's writing to a startup. He's writing to a church plant. And the reason he's writing is that they're beginning to drift into practices that are not of Christ. So the reason this is happening is this. The church at Colossae was a church made up of Gentiles, some Jews. And this brings us to a topic of family of origin. Now, Betty and I have done a number of premaritals. Okay? In fact, we just finished one with a wonderful couple this morning. And one of the things we talk about in premaritals is the family of origin for that man and that woman. You see, when a man and a woman get married, and those of you who are married know this, your families of origin aren't necessarily the same at all. For example, for, for Betty and I, her family of origin was rural, it was uh, blue-collar, it was the silent men of the West, okay? Wonderful, really wonderful people they all were, and there were many of them, it's a big family. Now, my family was more urban, white-collar, and not silent at all. A lot of times, at our dining room table, 
she'll attest to this, you would find myself, my five brothers and sisters, and my parents with encyclopedias and thesauruses and all these reference materials to make our point because we were talking about something. So when we got married, we, we brought me, Mr. Verbose, and her, Miss Silent, uh, and we were going to have a new family. Much like Colossae, none of these people showed up at the church in Colossae with a blank piece of paper. They all had a family of origin, and that family of origin had practices. Do this, don't do that, think this, that's not right, everyone should do this, nobody should do that. And they brought all that in, and it began to express itself in the church, because surely, and it can happen, there would be people in the church that will see the opportunity They would see the opportunity to have more influence, more control, be more important. And so here's Paul. He's in jail. He's not mobile. He doesn't know these people. Epaphras brought the word to them, remember? And so Paul writes a letter that we call Colossians, an epistle. So Paul starts out his letter, and there's a good template in what he does here. He starts out his letter, and he says... We so appreciate you. We value you. We honor you. And you've got the good news. You've got it. You get it. And then in the next set of verses, he says, and we pray that you'll have more wisdom and understanding because you're not there yet, okay? That there's more revelation for you coming. And then he says, by the way, remember what Jesus did for you. And let me tell you about Jesus. And that's the Christ hymn. Remember, we studied the Christ hymn two weeks ago. This is who he is. This is who he is. And lastly, he says, let me tell you how I fit in. How do I fit in? And uh, I'm going to read this one, and we'll put it up in the message. And the reason is the message is a paraphrase, right? We all understand that. Uh, But it gives us some 21st century language that sometimes is more meaningful to us than puzzling through the first century language. And Paul writes and he says, hey, well, he didn't say hey, but I I want you to know how glad I am that it's me sitting here in this jail and not you. There's a lot of suffering to be entered into in this world, the kind of suffering Christ takes on. I welcome the chance to take my share in the church's part of that suffering. When I became Now, check this out. When I became a servant in this church, I experienced the suffering as a sheer gift, God's way of helping me serve you, laying out the whole truth. So that's how he begins his letter. See, what Paul understood is this this church, to be able to navigate its landscape, it needed a compass that would point towards Christ. It had to point towards Christ, not towards the things of man, the ideas of man, the inventions of man. But that's hard for these people because they have this family of origin. So here they are, remembering their old customs and practices in the temples and temples and temples and all these ideas. So in the second chapter, Paul talks about his hope for them. It's his hope for them. And he says this, I want you woven into a tapestry of love, in touching with everything there is to know of God. Then you will have minds confident and at rest, focused on Christ, God's great mystery. 
all the richest treasures of wisdom and knowledge are embedded in that mystery and nowhere else. And we've been shown the mystery. I'm telling you this because I don't want anyone leading you off on some wild goose chase after other so-called mysteries or the secret. I'm a long way off, true, and you may never lay eyes on me, but believe me, I'm on your side, right beside you. I'm delighted to hear of the careful and orderly ways you conduct your affairs and impressed with the solid substance of your faith in Christ. So, when you think of all this, <clears throat> hold that in mind because you're going to meet the next word. And the next word's a very Pauline word, it's therefore. And it's common in Paul and his writings to lay a bunch of foundational points out and then arrive at therefore. And that's what he does. So he says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And that was the message we talked about last week. Remember the bean plant? Roots down, stems up. And then Paul takes authority. He's honored them. He's opened the door for them. He's told them who Christ is. He's told them how he fits in. He pulls it all together with a therefore, and then he tells them what to do. It's not a suggestion, not a good idea, not a hint. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental gifts of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul says, see to it. Why? Because they had been set free from false teachings and human traditions, and they were turning right back into them. So Paul's unequivocal. He's pointed. See to it. Don't do that. Today we're going to talk about the second therefore. And the second therefore is the one I read to you at the beginning of this, Colossians 2. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. See, what was going on here is the people that were the leading voices in that church were saying to people, look, there is a heightened form of spirituality you guys don't know anything about. It's different. It's way, way up here. And you can attain that, but you have to do certain things. You have to be... Uh, very meticulous about celebrating new moons and festivals and, and Sabbaths and those things. You need to deny yourself basic bodily needs. You need to suffer for the purity of what you're about to discover. And if you did all these things, and you passionately worshipped angels, what? Um then you're going to have access to things that ordinary people don't. But you have to do all of these little things. Now, Paul didn't say that these things were necessarily bad, but he framed it in, in a different way. He said, you've got to understand, all these old practices, 
all the dietary laws, all the Sabbath laws, all those things were a shadow. They were a shadow, and Christ is the substance. Don't stay in the shadows. Be in the substance. The underlying problem with what the Colossians were experiencing as they slide into the shadows is it becomes all about me. It's all about me. It's what I got to do. It's what I shouldn't do. It's what I should sometimes do, but not other times. It's all about me and my performance. And when you get into performance, what performance does is it, it drives a toxic mix of legalism, um, uh, elitism, pride, and all those things can take the people at Colossae and turn them away from the essence of Christ and Christ in them because now they think they have to perform. You know, the shadows start out looking pretty natural sometimes. They're kind of comfortable because we're familiar with them, but they don't end up that way. They don't end up that way at all. See, the people in the first century were a little bit different than us. In the first century, they didn't have the New Testament. They were the New Testament, okay? They didn't have it. They didn't have any grid. Their families of origin said, do this, do that. And the only way for them not to be trapped in that was to have a compass that pointed at Christ, not at themselves. Now today, we have a little different situation. (laughs) In the 21st century, we have so many compasses. It's amazing. The word that comes to mind is plethora. We have a plethora of compasses. Our families of origin, old bones, old bones that we bring. You know, uh, everybody wants to walk in faith and hope and love, don't we? You read of the fruits of the Spirit uh, in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, goodness. We hunger for the presence of Jesus in our lives, I think. And we strive for the intimacy and the peace that only he can bring. But does that work all the time? Does it work for us here all the time? I, I confess it. Maybe I'm the only one. It doesn't work for me all the time. Okay? Sometimes I have problems. And what I'm missing is what I read earlier um, and I can't remember where it is now. It was Paul saying, I want you. My hope for you is that you will have minds confident and at rest, focused on Christ, God's great mystery. That's where we need to be. Yeah. So, if you think about your life, or I think about my life, or let's all think about our lives, just say in this last week, have you had some things you've been afraid of? Some things that were fearful to you? Some things that disturbed your peace? Um, how about guilt or shame? There, a lot of times they're fellow travelers with us, you know. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Uh, have you ever found yourself walking with the hide-and-seek God, playing hide-and-seek? God's got something for me. He's got a mystery. 
He's got a treasure. He's got a secret. And if I can just pray hard enough, or I can do this, or I can do that, or I can, I can, I, oh, I, if I can do that, he's going to tell me. He's going to reveal it, and I will live happily ever after. That's the problem in the 21st century, is it's really hard to get there all the time. But the minute we turn to performance, then we get to meet some folks. One of the first folks we meet is guilt. Guilt is all about what I should do. I should help that homeless person. I should tell my brother-in-law what I really think of him. Whatever it may be, okay? And we feel guilt because we haven't done it. We haven't, we haven't done it. Another personality we meet is shame. Now, shame's a good one. If you got through last week without shame, I salute you, okay? Because shame is that place where we did something or we thought of something that was counterfeit to who we really are. It was in contrast to our identity in Christ. And so we feel shame because of what we did or what we thought in our effort to perform, to perform well. Yeah, we also meet hopelessness. Hopelessness says, whatever does it make? Uh, I mean, really, I try and I try, but I can't shake this sin habit or whatever it may be we're dealing with. And that leads to despair. Despair says, I'll never be good enough. I just, I try. I try and I can't get there. I'm in despair. And that takes us to the final step, and that's defeat. And that's when we say, yep, I'm not good enough. That's where performance takes us, and that's where it would have taken the church in Colossae had they not taken a different course. And I'd kind of like to cut to the chase, and I think everybody would be in favor of that, wouldn't they? When it comes to the things that Paul is writing about to the police, to people of Colossae, what he's saying is this. Look, Jesus is a lot more interested in your motives than your outcomes. What's in your heart? That's what he is interested in. Ask yourself. That's what he's saying to us. Ask yourself your why. Why are you doing something? Why are you feeling something? Why are you thinking something? Not what am I doing, feeling, or thinking. What is my why? What's my motive? There's a critical distinction here. See, just like in the first century, we have to deal with a very, very strong desire to make it about us. How many times have we seen several people maybe, or maybe just two people in an argument, and here, Betty and I are in an argument, and we're talking about less filling tastes great. Whatever it is, okay? <laughs> we're, we're in an argument. <laughs> That's probably not a good analogy, but <laughs> we're in an argument, and Jesus is at the center of our relationship. You know, that's what happens in marriage. And all of a sudden, one of us, more likely me, will push Jesus out of the center and say, no, it's me. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about my problems. Let's talk about how I feel. Let's talk about where you didn't meet my needs and so forth and so on. And that doesn't go well. Trust me. 
that does not go well. But the problem with performance is what we do is we surrender our identity. When we're out there trying to perform, who's our audience? Who's the audience? Sometimes the audience is those around us. Man, what a burden. I mean, if I had to impress you, I don't think you'd even want that, and I don't think I could ever do it, or at least not for long. Or even worse, what if we're trying to impress Jesus? Hey, watch me do this. Watch me do this. Me. Me, me, me. Watch me do this. It's a shadow. There's no substance there. And, and, you know, the irony is that when we get into that place and we want the approval of Jesus, <laughs> we want to impress him. That's crazy. I don't know why we but sometimes we do. What we're really doing is we're looking totally past what he's already given us and trying to get a hold of something we can't ever have because you can't get it that way. You're already, I'm already, we're all already totally accepted and totally loved by Jesus. There's nothing to earn. There's no clever things to say or great sacrifices to make or or anything like that. We already have it all. We sing about that. We already have it all. But when we fall short, then we get to meet another shadow. And this shadow is called pride. Now, pride is kind of the soft and easily gouged veneer of self-justification, okay? Very easily gouged veneer of self-justification. And so when our performance fails, we say, oh, well, yeah, but it wasn't my fault. See, pride, pride never takes ownership. It wasn't my fault. Um, some, there was some intervening externality. Uh, a comet came in and changed the magnetic field, and it, it didn't work out, you know? So we begin to edit our narrative. And the problem with editing our narrative is it doesn't work, when, right? When you, when you edit your narrative, then you will always be subject to your actual experiences that you're aware of and your memories. And your spirit is in agony. Because it's hooked to a corroded soul, you see? And so we have these imaginings that feel real good. Yeah, well, it wasn't really that way. They just didn't understand. It didn't really happen that way. And yet we know it did. And our memories remind us of it all the time. And we become vulnerable to pride, and we were never built to be prideful that way. There's another failed performance strategy, and we call that legalism. Paul was really on that here. Uh, hello, hopelessness and despair. Okay. Last time it was shame and guilt. That's what pride does. But here it's hopelessness and despair. Legalism is a shadow. That It's an illusion that somehow, by following humanly defined rules, we're able to check every box of being an authentic Christian. We're able to do that. And of course, one problem is you can't check every box. You just can't. So that sends us back into performance. And it causes us to continue to think that, that 
We weren't created to glorify God. We were created to glorify ourselves. So we continue in that loop. Performance, pride, legalism. Oh, and there's elitism, by the way. That was a a real hook in this church in, in Colossae. See, some of us know the secret. And if you're good, maybe someday, with the hide-and-seek God that you're chasing around, you get to have the secret too. Maybe. Maybe. And what happens then is it even gets worse because we say that individually. I got the secret, and if Betty's good, I'll tell her. Okay? (laughs) And then we all get together, and we say, we have the secret. We're a tribe. And we know. What we do is authentic, and what everybody else does isn't authentic. These people that worship in different fashions or believe different things, they're not authentic. And you know, we find ourselves saying, I have a judgment on you that you're disqualified from a relationship with God because of these things you're doing. Legalism tribalism, and elitism. And so back we go. What do we try to do? We try to learn more. So we study the word more. We read three more books. We go to a couple conferences. We try to pray more. We try to be more like Jesus. We try to do good deeds. We're trying to do all of these things, and we've completely missed... What's going on? We're trying to attain the essence of Jesus. We already have it. That's crazy, isn't it? So what are we going to do with this? Now that I've brought you all down thoroughly. (laughs) Now there is good news. And I'll tell you what it is. The good news is that we need to get our heart around to where we're anchored in the simplicity. Hear that? Simplicity and the clarity of who Jesus is for us. We need to peel off this veneer of civilization and society and get on our knees before the Lord and encounter Him as He truly is. See, the world we live in today, we have oh, all kinds of things that... That come after us. One of them, uh, I'll, I'll just name a few of them. Syncretism. You know what syncretism is? The idea behind syncretism is there is a mountain, and at the top of the mountain is fulfillment. And there are many paths up this mountain. But if you'll get on any one of those paths, you can be on a Buddhist path, or you can be on a Hindu path, or a Muslim path, or a Wiccan path, or a New Age path, any of those paths are going to lead you there. And we're going to have a mix-and-match wardrobe of religious practices to help you along the way. That's syncretism. Another thing that shows up is religious dogma. And really, religious dogma is a bunch of mumbo-jumbo that can get created so that we all can imagine we're doing the right thing. We're all doing the right thing. And lastly, what shows up is cultural relativism. And that is really tough in our society. How can you be culturally relative? How can you present? How can you represent? How can you represent Jesus 
to a non-believer in your workplace, uh, where you get your hair cut. I don't have that problem. But those things, you can do this. But what we tend to do is suppress ourselves. Why? Well, sometimes we tell ourselves, I don't want to be offensive. I mean, I don't want to drive people away from Jesus. don't want to do that. Sometimes it's, I don't want to be disliked. I don't want to be labeled as a religious nut. And so we compromise. Oh, hello, guilt, shame, see? Comes right back around. It's the simplicity of Christ and Christ in us. It's the only thing we got, but the only thing is everything. That's the good news here. Now, I do have to issue a disclaimer. I want to be clear. In bringing messages, there's always sort of a four-way problem. The first problem is what I meant to say. The second problem is what I actually said. The third problem is what you thought you heard. And the fourth problem is what you tell everybody else you heard. Okay? So this is quicksand. This is quicksand. I want to be sure it's clear. I'm not saying don't study the Bible. Don't read books. Don't grow. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray or we shouldn't contemplatively pray or we shouldn't listen for the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't love our brothers and sisters in tangible, sacrificial ways. I'm not saying those things. But what I am saying is we have to be centered in Christ and Christ alone. That's it. Anything else? Shifting sands. There's a song about that. Isn't there? Yeah. Paul says it well. In Colossians, he's, he's talking about the mystery, which is Christ. And he says, this mystery's been kept in the dark for a long time, but now it's out in the open. God wanted everyone, not just Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing. The mystery, in a nutshell, is just this. Christ in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. That's the substance of our message. We preach Christ warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more and no less. Yeah. It's not the why, it's the what. All these practices that we have in our spiritual rhythms, they're healthy, probably healthy, as long as they're not about me, as long as they're not about you. But when they become about us, then they're no longer healthy, and now we will be ensnared in elitism, or shame, or pride, or guilt. All those things are waiting for us if we choose to step through that door. That's what will happen. Then we meet a shadow instead of the light. Could we just pause for a moment and kind of get really real with ourselves a little bit? Self-examination is painful. You know, sometimes you meet things that you'd rather not meet. 
What are the shadows that we've trusted in our lives instead of the light? Just think about what you're trusting. Are the shadows? Are there some shadows there? Why do we do these things? For example, when we pray, is our prayer a habit? Or is it really a heartfelt desire to enter into a dialogue with our Lord and see what He has for us and to share our cares and our hopes with Him? You know, where in our lives are we really focusing on ourselves and not the Lord? You know, who's the audience? Who's the audience of your life? When I'm up here, I get to talk to you. Uh, I would love to be brilliant. I would love to have nothing but deep, insightful things to say, nuggets, and you would admire me and you'd say, well, what a spiritual giant that guy is. (laughs) And I realize there's no danger of that. You hear this right (laughs) But the truth of it is this. I don't have anything. I got nothing. Luke said it last week. I'm saying it this week. I got nothing. I can bring you the logos, the written word of God. That's what we've talked about. Colossians. But you have to encounter the rhema. What's the spoken word of God? Every person in this room is in a different place right now. And what is the rhema word of God that's coming into your life? What will it pursue you when you go out to your car and you go home? What is the rhema word of God? That's what's to be captured here. It has nothing to do with me or anything I've said. Come Holy Spirit. Release that rhema word into the hearts of everybody here. What about our collective why? here at at Vine Life. I love Vine Life. I don't know how you all feel, but I love it. Yeah, I love it. I really love it. And so, because I love it, I have to ask myself the question, what are the shadows that we're pursuing here? What are the shadows? This church has come a long ways. It's done a lot of wonderful things. It's had some terrible things happen to it. And one thing is clear is that as a church, the only reputation we have is Christ. That's it. It's not promise keepers. It's not scandals. It's not generosity. It's none of those things. It is Christ. That is our reputation. That's what we care about. It's Christ and Christ in us. Christ in our house. That's what we care about. No shadows, all light. That's what we need to do. That needs to be our command into the world. I will not accept shadows. I will only accept light. All light. No matter how painful it might be. So what's the target? Well, the target is not that. Hmm. The target is having a mind settled in Jesus. Having a mind settled in Jesus. Our target is knowing confidently that when we're in the storm, like Leslie was talking about, and you're in the shoes and you're just blowing back and forth, those shoes aren't going to come out of the floor. They're anchored. They're glued. They're screwed. They're welded. They're not coming out. That's the foundation of Christ in us. So when the storms blow, 
we can be settled in our minds and, and we can be peaceful with that. So, I'd like to leave you with three truths that I think we can trust. The first truth is the light of the substance will always overcome the shadow. The shadow cannot win. Go in a darkened room and turn on a light. Who wins, huh? It cannot be defeated. The second thing is this. The essence of sin is not about broken rules. The essence of sin is about a broken relationship. When the things that we do are things that we're pursuing an obsession that's not of Christ. Do you see what I mean? That's sin. That's sin. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. In Christ alone, we sing that. And the third thing is this, and maybe it's the most important one. You know, God loves us, and he loves us not, not because of who we are, what we do, who we are, but because of who he is. You get that? That puts me right on my face. That is something that's unconditional and undeserved by me. I don't know how you feel, but that's the way I feel. That I did nothing to deserve this. In fact, au contraire. There were days I was the enemy of Christ. The enemy of God. And I think that's probably true for all of us. So those three things cling to. And when you leave here today, look for the rhema word in your life. Examine yourself and your why. What's my motives? When I do these things, why am I doing them? Can we do that? I hope somebody's going to say yes here. (laughs) Otherwise, we just wasted 35 minutes. I know you will. I believe in you. I believe in you. Thank you for hearing me out. I love you. God bless you.